You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. Christmas time is that time of year when we give gifts, right? I mean, I know we give gifts for various reasons all throughout the year, but it's, it's at Christmas time when gift giving reaches its height. And uh, as great as it is to receive gifts, and I think most of us probably enjoy giving gifts, some of us probably more so than receiving, but we all receive gifts, I'm sure, during this season, at least I hope. But let's be honest, not every gift you get is something that you want or that you need. And then you find yourself in a dilemma, right? You're stuck with this gift. It's got value. I mean... These kinds of gifts that you have no need for, no value personally, become great gifts for regifting. And this has become a phenomenon. You know, if you do research about this, you'll find people actually have given protocol on how to regift. I mean, you should rewrap it, okay? I mean, I think it's okay to use the same gift bag if it came in a gift bag. Change the tag. There's a lot of things that you should do. Don't cross your name out and then put someone else's name in there. But regifting is when you give a gift that you've received from someone else and you give it to someone else as though you went to the trouble of getting this gift, right? Now we've created this whole white elephant thing where at Christmas parties we bring that kind of gift in. You know, it's a, yeah, this is going to be great. And it's got value, $5 value, right? If you don't want it and you can't use it, and you don't want to go to the hassle returning it at the customer service counter, then re-gift it, right? Yeah, thank you for that one person. Thank you. <laughs> Every re-gift has one thing in common with all other re-gifts, and that is that the receiver rejected it. Now, I want you to think about that. During this se- series, I want you to consider re-gifting gifts that you've received that were not rejected by you. Gifts that were important to you and valuable to you. If you don't want it, you can't, you can't use it. You don't want to go to the trouble of returning it. That's fine to re-gift that. But I want you to go a step further. And I want you to consider re-gifting these gifts, these good gifts that you've received at some point or, or other in your life from the Lord. And the gift we're going to talk about giving away today is the gift of peace. Peace is defined as freedom from disturbance, quiet, and tranquility. It's also described as the end of war or violence. Where does peace like that come from? I can tell you, God is the giver of that kind of peace. Now, the Bible talks extensively about peace. In Isaiah, the ninth chapter, verse 6, there's a prophecy about the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. And listen to what the prophet Isaiah wrote. He says, for to us a child is born. You've heard this. Unto us, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The title Prince of Peace characterizes the nature of Jesus' kingdom. He would be a peaceful prince, but not only will he rule compassionately, but also those who live in his kingdom will live in peace. 
In Luke, the second chapter, verse 14, the angels announced to the shepherds, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those whom his favor rests. The angels announced to the shepherds that the Messiah, who was Jesus, had come and that he would bring peace when he came. A peace that would minimize the effects and the troubles that we have in this broken world. But maybe the most comforting passage is the one that Paul wrote in Romans, the fifth chapter, verse 1. He says, Therefore, since you have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our sins are what separate us from God. But once we give our life to Jesus, we surrender to him, and he washes those sins away. Paul says we're justified. We're justified. That term, you could define it as just as if I never sinned. It's as if all the charges against you were washed away. A relationship with Jesus makes peace available to the Christian. It's a promise. We read it in God's word. Peace is pretty necessary in the world we live in, wouldn't you agree? I mean, I don't, need, I don't meet too many people that say, well, I got so much peace in my life. I'm overpeaced. <laughs> so tired of having peace. I wish there was a little conflict. And that's the opposite, right? The great, the great literary work, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day, is a classic children's book about a seven-year-old who had just one of those days where nothing went right. I mean, everything that he was involved in went bad. Let me read just a bit to you. He said, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth. Now there's gum in my hair. I went out. I, when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard. And by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running. And I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. After a terrible day at school, a horrible visit to the dentist, and a no good stop at the shoe store... Alexander slumps in his chair at supper time and writes, There were lima beans for dinner, and I hate lima beans. There was kissing on TV, and I hate kissing. You'll get over that, Alexander. My bath was too hot, and I got soap in my eyes. My marble went down the drain, and I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate my railroad train pajamas. Easy for you to say. When I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow. He said I could keep. And the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not with me. It was a, it's been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. You ever had a day like that? Where you had to wear your railroad train pajamas? Oh, that's terrible. Alexander was, was experiencing disappointment after disappointment. The poor little guy couldn't win for losing. I wonder if you've ever had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My guess is that some of you in this room had a few of them this week. Days like that create tension, don't they? They're oppressive. They cause us to fret. They're intense days that can produce anxiety. Days like that create unwanted stress. Stress, worry, anxiety, all symptoms of a life without peace. We need peace. Dr. Thomas Holmes and Richard Rahi, 1967, 
these two psychiatrists at the University of Washington did some remarkable research in the area of human stress. They studied whether or not stress contributes to an individual's illness. They conveyed, they, excuse me, they surveyed more than 5,000 medical patients and asked them to say whether they had experienced any of the 43 life events that they had earmarked over the course of the last two years. They measured stress in what they called life change units. And each life event had a different number of life change units attached to them. They represented kind of the more life change units, the more stress that the person had as a result of that event. On their scale, for instance, the death of the spouse ranked the highest. It was 100 of these life change units. Divorce from one spouse rated 73 units. Pregnancy, it's a great time, right? 40 units, stress units, some of you. Remodeling your home, 25 units. Even Christmas itself ranked 12 units. You can kind of imagine there's a little bit of stress at times this time of year. The more events the patient experienced, the higher the score. And the higher the score and the larger the weight of each of these events, the more likely the patient was to become ill. Their conclusion was that from a strictly human viewpoint, no person in his or her own strength can handle 300 or more life change units in a 12-month period of time without suffering physically or emotionally over the course of the next two years. This probably is not a surprise to people in this room that stressful events can affect us negatively, both physically and emotionally. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but could you identify with that? All of us face events in life that cause stress. With all the stress, which then often will lead to worry and anxiety, and now we find even physical and emotional health problems, it's clear that we need the antidote. We need peace. Well, the Apostle Paul speaks into this in Philippians, the fourth chapter. If you have your Bible or you want to turn on your phone or your tablet to Philippians 4, we're going to use verses 6 and 7. The Apostle Paul is going to talk about how this peace actually can work in our lives. Let me read verses 6 and 7 to you. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In verse 6, Paul says something pretty remarkable. He gives a directive. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Good. That's good. Do that, okay? We'll pray and be done. The problem is that's easier to say than it is to do, isn't it? How does that actually work, Paul? Well, Jesus talked a lot about anxiety and worry in uh, the epic sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount. And in the middle of that message... In, verses, in chapter 6 of that talk, Jesus unpacks the most common causes, the most common sources of worry. You might be surprised. 
but it applies because these are, where, these are incubators of worry. And Jesus said they were true in his day, and you'll find remarkably that they're also true today. Let me point out why these are important. You see, if you know where the potholes are in the road, you have a really good chance of not hitting them. So if you know where these stressors, these stress incubators can be found, you've got a fighting chance to not let it steal your joy. You're still going to need peace in your life, but you'll recognize the source. The first of these sources that Jesus talks about are physical attributes. This is kind of an interesting verse in Matthew, the sixth chapter, verse 27. He says, which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto your stature? He's talking about growing an inch. How many of you can, just thinking about it, can make yourself grow an inch? You can't. Now, there's a little controversy in the translation. The NIV says, can add a single hour to your life. In either case, whether you're talking about wanting to look taller, or you're worrying about how long your life is going to be. Both of these things are things that we can't do anything about, to be honest with you. Well, we can take care of ourselves and possibly live a little longer, but you can't really add time to your life just by thinking about it. Many people stress about trying to look a certain way, or they worry relentlessly about dying, even though that's way out there in the future. The second, the second uh, on our list of the most common causes of worry is clothing. Clothing. In Matthew 6, 28, he says, why do you worry about clothes? Anybody in here worry about clothes? He says, see how the flowers of the field grow? They do not spin or labor or spin. Many of us look at clothing with the idea that it will enhance our appearance on Friday, my wife took me on our annual pilgrimage to go shopping. I know some of you are shocked. We professionals put this ensemble together. I mean, I don't just walk out looking like this. This is a serious work. This is a lot of effort. Don't laugh. There's, there's a lot of man hours in this, in this ensemble. You know what the guy in the first service said? He goes, man, I bet it is hard for you. I mean, with all these young guys like Micah and Josh and all these young guys in green. To, it's hard for you to look hip at your age, he said. I think the paramedics revived him because I knocked him out. Man, what do you mean at my age? I'm not even trying. My wife tries really hard, but I'm not. I just show up. Here's the deal. The problem is that the styles that we, that we chase after, they change so often. It can become very stressful and very expensive to try to look hip. So we worry. Most people, I don't. I really don't. The third on our list of the most uh, common causes of worry are food and drink. Jesus said in Matthew 6.31, So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? You know, there are people all around the world that have no idea where their next meal is going to come from. And that causes stress. This creates maybe the worst anxiety when they worry about not just where they're going to eat, but how they're going to feed their families. This creates an unbelievable amount of stress. The fourth on our list, the final cause of worry, Jesus said, is the future. 
In Matthew 6, 34, he says, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Not knowing what will happen tomorrow in itself can cause us to worry. Think about it. We find a lump or we hear some kind of funny noise coming out of our car, and we automatically think the worst, don't we? I remember several years ago, my dad went for one of these scans, you know, where they scan all the plaque buildup in your arteries, and his heart was great. They sent him a report and said, you look great. But they said a secondary look at the other major organs, and they said, you need to go see your primary physician about your liver because something's not right there. And the time from my dad got that letter to the time he met with his doctor, he was convinced he had liver cancer, okay? Based upon his medical background, which was zero. He picked out his casket. He knew what suit he was going to wear at his funeral. I mean, he had it all mapped out. And then he got to there, and they took an ultrasound. He said, yeah, you just have a scar on your liver. You probably lacerated. That's pretty serious, but you're it's all healed, and he was fine. But that's what we do, right? Somebody says something, and we anticipate the bad doctor's report, right? Or the loss of a job that hasn't happened yet, or the death of someone close to us. All of those things could happen tomorrow. They could. They could. And the more we think about it, the more it kind of grinds us down. What if it happens, we think? So we worry. Even in Contemporary life, with all the complexities and all the advancements and all the technology, these simple, these same simple concerns still cause us stress. Now, I, you may have come in here feeling pretty good, and now I've really messed you up. You're going, I do have a lump. I do have a lump. I should get that ultrasound. Here's what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians Four, six. If we could summarize it, he says prayer cures anxiety. Now, that, some of you may say, I've tried that, but it didn't work. I'm just telling you what the Apostle Paul said. He gives us an understanding of the comprehensive nature of a person's prayer life in these two verses. It is prayer that relieves the problem of anxiety. The significant part of that prayer, though, should be offered with thanksgiving. This attitude of gratitude should accompany every one of the requests that we make to the Lord. Let me go back and read verse 7 for us one more time. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The answer to to the anxiety that we deal with today, the worry and the stress, is truly the peace of God. It's the answer. And Paul makes... Three distinctions about the peace of God in verse 7. The first thing he says is this peace is divine. It comes from God. It's not something you can gin up. It's not something that you can kind of put together in your flesh. It comes from God. God, Paul didn't envision this situation where circumstances are changed and external needs were all met in order for you and I to have peace. In fact... None of that may happen. This peace is simply a characteristic of God which fills the Christian no matter what he or she's circumstances are. The second distinction that he makes about the peace of God is that this peace exceeds all understanding. I love the phrase. He says it transcends 
understanding. It transcends all understanding. It means it's beyond man's ability to comprehend it. We can't explain it. That doesn't mean that we don't experience it. I mean, I don't understand how my garage door works. I mean, I push this button and there's some beam that shot. I don't get that, but it doesn't mean I don't use it. I mean, I hit that button every time I want to go in the garage. I mean, remember the days when you had to get out and actually open the door? Cavemen. I mean, right? I may not understand fully how this piece of God works, It's way beyond our comprehension, but that doesn't mean that we can't experience it. I may not be able to explain it to you, but it doesn't mean I can't experience it. Paul contrasts in this verse knowledge and peace, and he says that peace excels over knowledge. It blows it away, which made me start to think, you know, someone can come to you and explain why something happened to you, and it makes sense. But it doesn't always make you feel better, right? Knowledge doesn't always make us feel better. In reality, it may actually make you feel worse. Knowledge alone is insufficient to always bring comfort. Sometimes an explanation does give us some satisfaction, but not always. Not always. Sometimes it can't explain things. They try. Knowledge, wisdom, you know. And sometimes explanations don't help at all. Peace, on the other hand, is always appropriate. And it meets the needs of the heart and the mind. The third distinction that Paul points out here in verse 7 about the peace of God is this peace will guard your heart and your mind. The word in Greek that he uses there for guard is a military term. And it implies that peace is on duty to keep out anything that brings worry and anxiety. So for these three distinctions, the fact that the peace of God comes from God, it's divine. The fact that it transcends our understanding. It's way beyond just our simple comprehension of it. And the fact that it, it sets up a guard to protect our heart and our mind. When we experience that peace, what we find is that prayerful people often are peaceful people. People who pray, they're often people who experience deep levels of this peace. In fact, when there's chaos around, oftentimes the steady hands are people who have this deep walk with God. What if that was you? What if that was you? Earlier this year, while I was in Nepal, some of you remember that, Our team traveled to the southern region of the country. It's the plain region. And uh, we went down there to visit a number of villages where there were no churches. These These were target villages for church planners to go in. And when we arrived, one of the men on the team that I was serving with, he made this passing comment. I wish I could tell you exactly what he said, but he said something like, we need to be looking for a person of peace, or we need to, be, we need to find a man of peace. And I didn't know what that meant. I was like, yeah, we need to look for people who are peaceful because I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I mean, we're kind of in the minority here. You know, I didn't know what they were talking about. I'd never heard that term before. And when I got home, Not long ago, I spent a little bit of time digging into this person of peace phrase. And I found in Luke, the 10th chapter, where Jesus 
sends out his disciples in pairs. And he sends them out to all of these cities and places where Jesus is going to visit. These are like his advanced team. They're going to kind of soften up the crowd, they'll prepare the way for Jesus. And he gives them this, that when they're in these cities, they're to heal the sick, and then they're to announce that the kingdom of God has come near to you. And then we read about the person of peace. Listen, in Luke the 6th chapter, or the 10th chapter, excuse me, verses 5 and 6, he says, Whatever house you enter, say, peace be to this house. These teams, they would say this to the house that's going to host them. And it says, if a man of peace, this is a person who's inclined toward being peaceful to you, even though they don't know you. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. I started to understand, the person of peace is a person who's inclined to show you peace, to extend peace to you, even though they have no reason to do that. They just naturally are a person of peace. So as we walked through this first village, it was very difficult for us to communicate because nobody spoke English. And it took us two translators in order to speak from what we had to say into the Taru dialect that they spoke. Two translators, the most awkward, challenging experience that I'd had on that trip to that point. We would say something in English. One translator would translate it into Nepali, which is a common language among the people of Nepal. And then they would translate that into, a second translator would translate that into Taru. These people didn't speak Nepali. And you can imagine trying to have a conversation. I just smiled a lot. That's pretty powerful right there. Hey, I have no idea what you're saying, dude. Go, go. Yeah, yeah, love Jesus. Okay. And as we're going along, we met this young man. His name was Chauvacant. I think we have a picture of him. <coughs> he was probably 16, 17 years of age. He'd been at a boarding school, and he learned English while he was there, and he spoke actually really good English. I mean, you, it, when you meet someone <laughs> who speaks things, you're like, yeah, you want to hug him. Like, that's really weird. So I didn't, but, you know, Chauvacant wasn't a Christian, but man, he made it so easy to communicate with people who were part of that community. We could talk with him, and he could talk to others, and we had a conversation. He was our man of peace, our person of peace. Have you ever thought about yourself being a person like that, that you could be a person of peace I mean, peace, a person of peace is that person that builds a bridge from the gospel to a person who needs the gospel. And they may not even be a Christian in the case of Shovakan. He was used by God in a powerful way. He didn't even know it. What about you? Is it possible that you could be a bridge to a person or a group of people so that they could learn about Jesus? Why not re-gift peace? By being a person of peace. Why not re-gift peace that you've experienced through your relationship with Jesus by helping people connect with Jesus so that they too might have peace? Let me close with this. Some of you probably have heard the song, All Shook Up. It was made popular 
for those of us that aren't hip, in the 1957, in 1957, by Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll. A lot of people don't know this about Elvis. They just think he was, you know, a phenomenal singer and performer. But he grew up dirt poor in a little town in Mississippi. He was the only child. He didn't have much encouragement from his parents. And truthfully, he didn't have a lot of of talents or skills. By the time he was 18, he was making $14 a week driving a truck. And on a whim, he made a, a recording, what we would call a demo. And you know the rest of the story. He became the highest paid male performer in America at that time. He was incredibly famous. He was known worldwide. He had a tremendous amount of wealth. And if you were just looking at Elvis from, you know, the sidelines, you'd say, that guy has it all. But not long before his death, not, not long prior to his death, Elvis said that he would be willing to give a million dollars to have one week of a normal life of peace. He said, I I just want to walk down the street of the city that I'm in and have people not harass me and hassle me. Elvis found out that money and fame and all the things that go with it wouldn't alleviate the stress and the hardship and the hassle that comes in life, certainly a life like he was living. Elvis was 42 years of age when he died. And they say that so many flowers were sent for his funeral that it weighed over five tons, the amount of flowers. That's, that's somebody who a lot of people thought really highly of. They loved him. People traveled from all around the world for days and days, driving, flying everywhere to get to Memphis for his funeral. This all for a man who would have given a million dollars for one week of peace. And yet, his life really was, you know, summed up in that song, all shook up. Because there was no peace. There was no peace. And that's tragic because peace is available. It's available through Jesus. How important is peace to you? Do you have peace in your life today? If you're a follower of Jesus and you lack peace, what the Apostle Paul said is just pray with a thankful heart. You can have that peace. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know what he said in Matthew 6.33. At the end of that list of all those causes, the most common causes of worry, this is what he said. He said, seek first his kingdom. He's talking about his father's kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. I don't know how God does it. That's a promise, though, that Jesus gave. God takes all the things that stress us, and he gives us what we need when we're his followers. You see, accepting Jesus will open the door to this peace of God that transcends all understanding, that you can't get it anywhere else. Oh, you can search, you can look, you can spend money, you can do a lot of things, but you will never find this true peace that's beyond your comprehension to explain, except in Jesus. If you don't have Jesus in your life today, I'd love to talk to you about that. Tell you how 
changed my life and he could change yours as well. Let's pray together. Lord, we do live in a world that is filled with all kinds of trouble and difficulty. And the future for many of us is, you know, it's uncertain. We don't know what tomorrow holds. But we do take great confidence in knowing that you hold tomorrow. So much of our lives are filled with things that cause us to worry and want to lead us into stressful and anxiety-filled lives. And yet your answer is peace that comes from you. God, will you fill our hearts today? Fill the hearts of your people with peace. That when we leave this place, we have this sense of collective exhale of saying, thank you, God, for the peace in my soul. Grow our faith, Lord, so that we will trust you and trust these promises that you've made to us when we don't have the answers for life's challenges. And Lord, for those who are not part of your family yet, I pray that they will see the wisdom that there is in trusting you as Lord so that they too can have peace. Once a man has his sins forgiven, he's no longer at odds with you. His eternity is secure. Then he's no longer one who has to worry. Now he can have peace. God, thank you for the blessing of peace in our hearts and in our minds. It comes from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.